Hello and thank you for listening to the fourth or fifth, who knows, Carbondale Historical Society's podcast. This episode continues with a historical women's project produced by Sue Gray, Kate Skirwin, and Rally Burleigh. The episode is from Lori Loeb. Her story is simply fantastic. Beyond her accomplishments, an understanding of Lori causes one to understand why Carbondale has become what it is today. Most important are the themes which connect the current with the past. For example, when she created Mountain Fair, she was motivated to bring together the ranching community with the arts community. Therefore, Mountain Fair represents an effort to solve a problem that is quite current, getting people from different backgrounds and opinions to come together. She also founded Carbondale Arts. She's the reason Carbondale found its footing as an arts community. For me, I also find it interesting to see her silver spoon roots intersect with the grit of a ranching and mining community. Lastly, she's one of the originators of the Mothers of Carbondale. This represents the need for female leaders, and their efforts were directed towards the story of money. And as we look at the new city market, just how difficult it is to stand in the way of money and growth. In any case, I've heard about the mothers of Carbondale, but never really understood them until I listened to this. Enjoy. I was uh, born Laurel Epstein um, in New York City, and my parents lived in the suburbs, but I was born in the city in 1940. My parents were born in in the United States, but my grandparents came from Eastern Europe, um, Russia, Bulgaria, maybe Austria, and uh, they settled um, in the Bronx, and that's where my parents were born and lived um, until just a couple of years before I was born when they moved to the suburbs in Westchester County. My uh, early childhood was quite outdoor-oriented. My father's hobby was horticulture, and he became world-renowned and lectured all over internationally. And uh, so I was outdoors a lot in the garden, and we lived right next to a big woods, and so I would spend a lot of time in in the woods. And I was very privileged to have um, an upbringing that gave me a lot of exposure to the arts. My parents took me to concerts and museums and dance performances and theater in New York City. And uh, I started in music, um, playing piano when I was maybe five or six. And after a few years of that, I Uh, moved on to accordion, and I played in an accordion band in in New York City. And we even played on the Ted Mack Original Amateur Hour. And then when I got into um, junior high school, I wanted to play in the band, but I didn't know a band instrument. But since I knew the keyboard from playing piano, they put me on orchestra bells in the percussion section. And they got um, an arrangement of dragnet, and there was nobody to go boom, 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 you know, right before dum, 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 which is the theme of dragnet. There was nobody to play that, so I picked up timpani mallets 
and started to play that. And from striking the first note, I just totally was captivated by playing timpani and the, the deep bass drums. And so my, my parents, I, I told them I wanted to take lessons. So my mom found me a teacher, and it was Morris Goldenberg uh, from the New York Philharmonic, and he was teaching at Juilliard. So I was uh, only 12 at the time, and um, so my mother would drive me into the city, and Juilliard at that time was in Harlem, and she would drive me down there for lessons. And then I got to play... Um, in a repertory orchestra in New York City, which was the sort of the training orchestra for graduates of Juilliard, Manus, and Manhattan schools of music and all the, the good music uh, conservatories. So I got a very, very strong background in uh, repertoire. And then summers, while I was um, in junior high school, uh, I went to Interlochen um, National Music Camp in Michigan. This is before it became a year-round school, art school. So I was there for a few summers. And then I came out to Aspen to play in the Aspen Music Festival and School, and that was in 1957. And Aspen only had like 750 people population, and the highway was the only paved road. And as soon as I stepped into the valley, I just knew that this is where I wanted to live. And I went to, I went to uh, college in Michigan. And um, after junior year, I dropped out to move to Aspen year-round. And I've been in this valley ever since. And I, I lived in Aspen all during the 60s. It was very important for me to be outdoors during the day to ski and bike and hike and all that. So I worked in the bars and restaurants, and I was a, a singing cocktail waitress at the Crystal Palace for a few years. And I also started um, silversmithing uh, with um, Gerard Sanderson, who was a silversmith. Um, it, it was a seasonal life, and then, you know, we had real off-seasons, and there was just, you know, nothing open in the off-seasons, so then I would travel usually down into Latin America. When I was 22 in Aspen, I married a man who was on ski patrol, and after two and a half years of marriage, he was killed in a kayak accident. So I was a 25-year-old widow. And uh, 11 years later, I remarried. I married Ray Adams. He started the Crystal River Community Orchestra down here, and we grew that and refined it. And that, that orchestra um, was actually the predecessor of the symphony in the valley and of the Aspen Choral Society because we also got a, a chorus together to start doing the Messiah. And, oh, we had some fabulous uh, Carbondale talent shows back in the, in the early to 
mid-70s here in Carbondale. And Ray headed up the pit band for that. And those were held uh, originally at the what's now the Crystal Theater. And then the Crystal got shut down because of safety issues until um, Bob and Kathy Ezra you know, renovated it and made it into the movie theater. Ray and I divorced after six years. So, and I never had kids. So I've been uh, single since, gosh, since like the early 80s. And uh, I had the good fortune of finding a very good deal on some property here in Carbondale in 1969 and ended up here. And my friends up in Aspen would say, what are you going to do in Carbondale? I mean, it was almost like it was on the other side of the earth. But I found plenty to do. This property that I I bought, um, it was three houses all in a row. And uh, one of them was totally uninhabitable, had been abandoned for five years and was condemned. And that actually is the one that I currently live in. So I had a lot of work cut out for me there because I did a lot of that work myself. I had actually uh, started some craft fairs up in Aspen. And when I moved down Valley, there wasn't much going on here. Um, and, uh, well, there was, there was an, actually there was an opera company from the college and, and a theater company. And we had two newspapers. And we had a, a, a ballet company here in Carbondale with a population of 600 people. And in 1972, the State Arts Council approached um, George Stricker at CMC about doing a Chautauqua program. And they approached the college to see if they could um, find somebody to organize it. And they did. But a couple of weeks before the festival was going to happen, uh, that person was in a car accident and couldn't do it. So George uh, asked me if I would take it on. And this was like two weeks before the, the date, and uh, really nothing had been done. So um, I thought, well, you know, we've got some artists here in town it, it's wonderful that they're bringing in some performing and visual artists uh, for us to see what's going on out in the world, but I thought it would be appropriate for us to showcase what we had here. We had a, a mayor um, who was a very fine bronze sculptor, and several other artists were moving into town because uh, the rents were so affordable and there was plenty of space available back then. So um, I put together this little festival, and we had um, Hopis who were brought in by the State Arts Council, and they did demonstrations of weaving. And let's see, Charlie, uh, the, the mayor, exhibited his uh, Remington-style bronze sculptures, and 
we had uh, the the Boy Scouts had a little booth of painted rocks and seed necklaces. It was pretty funky. There were about twenty booths, and we we built a, a temporary bandstand and had some some music, and uh, it was a festival that everybody liked. And you know, when I moved to town, I was actually the first newcomer here for many years, and. And then artists started moving in. This was a town of coal miners and ranchers. And uh, as more artists and so-called hippies moved in, there was some trepidation on the part of the people who were already here. So I thought, well, the arts would be a good way to bring people together. And um, so each year, <coughs> we expanded the number of booths, and more local artists were here. And then uh, it started attracting artists from other places in the country who would come to to participate. We say that Mountain Fair started in '72 because uh, although the, the state brought in some artists. And under the umbrella of Chautauqua, we created our own and expanded and provided music. <coughs> so that was really the beginning of Mountain Fair. I was the director for the first seven years. Clear back in, oh, I think it was probably the 70s or 80s, we were nominated for the Governor's Award in the Arts. So... You know, we've we've been doing it for quite a while now. It took a lot of work on a lot of people's part, but um, we had participation across the board from many different uh, segments of the community. And and after Mountain Fair was going for a few years, and we decided to um, have some other cultural events at other times during the year, um, and we had we had a theater troupe that did Antigone out in the street in front of the the Dinkle Building. We had culinary arts festivals and artists in the school programs. And so after a couple of years of that, um, we decided to formalize, and that's when we developed the Council on Arts and Humanities, and um, the State Arts Council. Uh, was a huge help to us. There was a woman by the name of Judith Ray who was my mentor. And um, we just really built up a strong arts council and uh, began to um, create a name for ourselves as an art-centered community. And, you know, there really wasn't much of an economic base here aside from coal mining and ranching. And so that was the, the cultural renaissance. And we all just gave of ourselves to the community effort. It was a, a very vibrant community. And because of Mountain Fair, we managed to bridge you know, the differences between the different populations. My mother 
was out here in a nursing home. She had severe dementia, and uh, she was at Heritage Park. And the variety of activities that were offered to the residents were uh, appalling, in my opinion. Um, They were just, you know, uh, things done in front of people, done at them, but not participatory. And I had just been to a drum circle facilitation training, um, and I thought, oh, this would be a good activity to do at the nursing home. And so I started that program, and I named it Rhythms of the Heart, just meaning that it was, you know, a heart-centered, rhythm-based activity. So Rhythms of the Heart was my business, and I, I did drum circles um, for special needs populations. I worked with Mountain Valley Developmental Services, and I worked with um, some uh, uh, substance abuse recovery programs and in the schools and with some community organizations for team building. And I taught workshops in um, hand drumming, uh, some West African and Middle Eastern, and I combined, I have a, a graduate degree in psychology and counseling, which after dropping out of school after junior year, I, I finally went back in my mid-40s, and I, I refused to relocate, so I went to the UNC, University of Northern Colorado Center for Special and Advanced programs and got a a master's in psych and counseling. So I would combine that with the drumming and and do uh, like self-development workshops. And And I had a little shop of selling drums and percussion equipment called the Funky Monkey, and that was in my house. I was supposed to be doing some um, drum circles in the Oasis part of Mountain Fair, and <laughs> on Friday of the, the opening of the fair, there was a fireball. It was um, a power surge from the, from the power station, um, either up on Missouri Heights, or and that came down through the power station up on North 133, and it, it, uh, God, it was it was like a dragon breathing fire. I was standing right under it in the park, and you couldn't feel the heat, but you could feel the force. And it was like a dragon just going, Wah! you know. And this ball of fire shot across the park for on a on an electric line, and um, it blew out all the electricity at the park. So fifteen minutes. After the first band started playing, there was no power, so there was no music. So um, Thomas, the director, said, go home and get your drums and let's do a drum circle. So within 20 minutes, since I only live a couple of blocks from the park, within 20 minutes, we had a drum circle of about 80 people going. And it was such a hit. And people people loved that there was no electricity for a while because then they could visit with each other and not be drowned out by amplified music. Anyway, it was such a hit that we decided to continue it. And um, 
I wanted to call it the Fireball Commemorative Drum Circle, but that name just didn't stick. <laughs> but we've had a, a drum circle ever since then, and I believe that was 98 or 99 when the drum circle started. I saw about 10 years ago um, a film of my one of my cousin's uh, birthday parties when she was nine or ten and I was uh, 12 and there's, there's a circle of of her friends and herself sitting on the grass and I'm in the middle of the circle and I'm bopping around there was no sound with this film but there I am jumping up and down and going around and around in the circle and pointing at people and it, it's like I'm facilitating a drum circle or a rhythm circle. I had no recollection of that. And it blew me away when I saw this film because, you know, I guess I knew my calling way back then. I decided to pass on the directorship of mountain fair because I mean it was an enormous amount of work and it totally consumed my life um, and I wasn't earning at it so I needed to devote some time to earning a living um, and I just thought that it would, it would be good for new blood and I, I never liked the idea of you know one person being indispensable and when when I started the Arts Council um, I got a board of directors together to be truly representative of the various uh, factions in the community. We've got uh, representatives on the board from the um, education community, the clergy, business, and that that helped to bring people together and, and engage all of the different kinds of people who were here. The Arts Council focused on both performing and visual arts and um, artists in the school programs because there was a rather scant offering in the school system here. And we had theater and we had some, um, you know, we collaborated with the, the existing things of, you know, like the college and its... Um, opera program and uh, the Carbondale Community Theater, uh, which was held in the Dinkle Building, in, in what's now the Crystal Theater. Uh, and, and we had this culinary arts festival, and, and there were really no performance venues around town back then, and so most of our uh, concerts and uh, other larger public events were held in the barn down at CRMS. And we did a lot, lot of collaboration with the town. You know, we partnered with the town to present a lot of these things. And we also, um, the, the town rec department uh, programming consisted only of sports. And um, I thought, well, you know, there are people who don't want to play sports, but they, their form of recreation is more on the cultural side of, you know, going to concerts and um, 
ballet and theater. And so we collaborated with the town to offer um, a program where we would bus people out to artist studios and to different um, performing events. So we were fairly, fairly broad. After I started, you know, organizing the fair and the arts council, um, I was hired by the state council on arts and humanities to be a consultant. And I traveled around a great deal on mostly the Western slope and some up into Wyoming to help uh, small communities get their arts acts together. And I worked for the college. Um, I was uh, an outreach uh, counseling and information person. And then I was the director of student services for the college. And then I also taught uh, classes in management of volunteer programs. So I haven't had just one career. And also I had my own custom rototilling service called Fertile Fanny and her big machine. Well, I've been involved in a lot of things. Besides Mountain Fair and the Arts Council, um, I was the spearhead with a small group of other women. Um, uh, we were known as the Town Mothers, um, and we uh, defeated the early uh, proposals for big box development out where the new city market is now. The name came about because we didn't think that the town fathers were doing a good job. <laughs> so we decided to form the town mothers, and it was uh, Becky Young, Shelley DeBeck, Linda Criswell, um, Roe Mead, and of course there were many, many other people who helped us out, but that was the core group. You know, when the big box was first proposed here, it was like they the developers wanted to turn this into some shopping mecca. Well, that's not why people came here. One of the high points of my life was when we had our first victory there. There was negative input from the community for a few years on that proposal. And then the trustees went ahead uh, and approved it anyway. And I think the developers have planted a few council members. <laughs> and that was approved. And uh, we thought that was not the will of the people. And so we, uh, by petition, um, forced a referendum. And uh, boy, that whole campaign was amazing. We got so many volunteers working on it, and we had architects building models, and, and uh, we had a display center on Main Street. Uh, the developers had a display center in what's now uh, the Brass Anvil, and uh, so we somebody gave us a space across the street, and we called it the other side of the street, the other side of the story. And... Uh, the, the developers' renderings showed big trees and little people and little buildings. They were all out of scale. So we, uh, 
we did an overlay on their rendering that showed Carbondale trees and marketplace trees and Carbondale people and marketplace people so that people could see the accurate scale. And we did diagrams of how far the cars would stretch um, based on the number of projected trips per day. And it was like, you know, three quarters of the way up to up to Redstone. <laughs> Anyway, that whole thing was, was amazing. So we we actually won the referendum. It was about 60 to 40%. And so the approval was overturned. And, and then five years later, the developers came back with yet another proposal. So what they did was they gave it conditional approval on the basis that it go to a public vote. And when it went to a public vote that time, it was two to one against. And so we held off on big box style um, development for quite a long time. And then after that, the, um, the mayor and the trustees appointed a, an economic development roadmap committee uh, to come up with a, an, a, a plan. And when we started out, um, it was equally, I think there were 15 people on it, so it was almost equal between big box supporters and big box opponents. After much education of the, the trustees and the community, um, by the end of our 15-month process, there were only two people who still favored the big box style development. And those two people were directly related to the developer. And after that, um, it was interesting that the trustees never formally adopted this economic development roadmap, but Carbondale just started flourishing organically because people really appreciated that it wasn't like the you know, how everywhere else was going, you know, with all these uh, chain stores and, you know, no individual identity. So I'd like to see, you know, less divisiveness and more more equality, um, more uh, diversified economic opportunities, um, and I'd, I'd like to see us be able to get back to, um, you know, the strong sense of community feeling. And I think for, you know, for women, I would like to see women develop more independence. When I was a youngster, um, my family was fairly conventional in that my father was the breadwinner and my, my mother did not work outside of the home, although she did a lot of um, volunteerism. And, you know, she, her role in life was to, you know, take care of the, the family and, uh, you know, support my father. And she was submissive to him. And uh, when I moved out here to this valley, uh, there there were women who were working up at the uh, sawmill up in Lenado. There was a woman whose husband had gotten hit by a falling tree 
and he couldn't work any longer, so she took over his job. And there were women, you know, who were ranchers, and so these were women who didn't, um, you know, fill that role that I had grown up to to think of. I mean, things were pretty prescribed for me, and I, you know, I was expected to get a good education and then get married to a professional and have a family. Well, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> the thing is that here, like living in Aspen all during the 60s, uh, there were very independent people who had dropped out of the establishment and forged their own way. And people had moved to, to Aspen not to get away from things, but to go toward a life that they could craft for themselves. And that's pretty much what formed me. I mean, Aspen was a very different place when I first got there. Uh, Main Street was the only paved street. There were dogs sleeping in potholes. Um, there was maybe only one vehicle parked on a block. There were a lot of unique small shops, no franchises. There was no socioeconomic stratification, no attention to clothing. So that really, um, you know, sort of fortified my uh, cultivation of independence. And then um, when I moved down to, to Carbondale, uh, you know, I just had to forge my own way. There was a, an old woman who lived across the street from me, and she would she was sort of my mentor. She taught me about mushroom foraging, and she helped me learn how to make sauerkraut and things like that. But uh, as I said before, you, you had to be resourceful and creative to survive here because there weren't many job opportunities. There were times, you know, just a couple of decades ago when I would be coming down Valley on the bus and I would just burst into tears because the whole the whole valley floor was just farm and ranch land when I first came here. You know, Willits didn't exist and there were you know, and there weren't the big McMansions around and it was just a just a much more down to earth place. There were 650 people and no paved roads at all, none. It was very dusty. And the population was, you know, ranchers and farmers and coal miners. And, and there were, in, the, in the valley, you know, there really was, wasn't much besides the ski industry and forest service and schools. Those were the... Uh, those were the, you know, the employment opportunities. And you had to be very resourceful and creative here and create your own jobs if you didn't want to be in one of those sectors. You know, now other, other mountain towns, almost all mountain towns uh, that only had winter uh, economies, you know, through skiing, um, you know, have all cultivated their art scenes which has diversified them and made them more prosperous and attractive. And that's, you know, one of the problems that our small towns are becoming so attractive that they're not small anymore. I think one of the biggest changes of Carbondale, and this goes for so many places, 
is how gentrified it's become. And I, you know, I have to admit, I, I like some, you know, I like the nice restaurants and uh, it's nice to have some, some pavement <laughs> now and, and some sidewalks, although the sidewalks have their obstacles. But I mean, you know, some of, some of the aspects of the development, uh, I think, have been very beneficial. But the cultivation of Carbondale as an arts community, you know, has sustained and has um, really, you know, put us on, on the map. The next episode will be about Mary Ferguson, narrated by Dorothea Ferris in first person. Mary Ferguson's Historical Women's Project episode is extremely important because it is a prelude to the next 100 episodes or so, which will be the publishing of Mary Ferguson's interviews, which she did more than 50 years ago on KDNK.